Network NFL podcast. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe. Consider leaving us a five star review if you enjoy the podcast. And make sure to download the Action Network app for all live odds and scores and the one and only app where you can track each and every bet that you make throughout the week. It's Sunday night and we're here to talk about what just went down in week 12 and look ahead to Monday and Thursday night football. As always, I am Ian Hardis, director of the Fantasy Labs NFL product in Action Network analyst. Here with me, as always, is Chris Raybon, co-host of I'll Take That Bet on ESPN+, Plus, as well as senior editor and NFL analyst at Action Network and Fantasy Labs. Chris, what's going on, man? What is up, Ian? It's a, uh, it was a good week 12. We had Thanksgiving uh, this past Thursday, so a uh, whole lot to talk about. We'll stick mostly to Sunday, but first we'll get things started with some of our best and worst core plays of the week. Some players pay and some players slay. Who were the bankroll builders and bankroll killers from week 12? All right, Chris, give me your single best play of the week, man. Who was your bankroll builder? I'm going to say it was Eric Ebron. Um, I was thinking David Morris originally because he was also kind of a cheap wide receiver that you could have pivoted off of of guys like Cortland Sutton with. But Ebron had another multi-touchdown game. He had actually played, you know, more snaps in the game prior to, to this week when he had nothing in the box score than than he did when he had the three touchdowns the week before. So he's a guy who they're essentially just using him, you know, on these high leverage plays, you know, downfield plays, red zone plays and things like that. So happened to pay off again. And the Dolphins are a team you always kind of want to target with those tight ends. That's a good point about his specific um, targets. I remember I was hating on his snap count. I think uh, Matthew Friedman mentioned how many end zone targets he's been getting this year. It's just absurd. I mean, he only needs a, for you to really cash in. My best play this week was Austin Eckler. Obviously, Melvin Gordon had knee and hamstring problems. Really interesting situation where uh, the reports coming out were that organization didn't want Melvin to play, but he was kind of forcing his way through. So it just seemed like a situation where we, we had a heightened chance of uh, Gordon kind of re-aggravating that knee injury and also just playing the Cardinals. We've seen the Chargers kind of get ahead in, in these games pretty quickly and feed uh, their backup. Both things kind of ended up happening. Eckler ended up 10 catches, 35 yards, and a touchdown on the ground. Only 5.6% owned the millionaire maker due to Gordon being active. So was happy to take advantage of that situation. My worst play this week is also a running back, David Johnson. I, uh, I like the matchup versus the Chargers defense. They lost their starting middle linebacker, Denzel Perryman, two weeks ago. Defensive tackle, Corey Ligent, last week. But, I mean, I don't think I factored in enough just how good Joey Bosa is. And, I mean, he – if he doesn't outweigh those losses, I mean, it's pretty close. And then just kind of the Cardinals offense, you know, they have looked better, uh, you know, with Byron Leftwich calling plays. I still don't think they've passed 21 points with him calling their plays. So still kind of a, a volatile offense, especially with Josh Rosen under center. So, I mean, David Johnson's definitely a little bit further uh, back from when he was in weeks one through four, but still might not be a matchup proof smash guy. What was your worst play? Jarvis Landry, you know, he's a guy who I love the target share. I always try to target uh, receivers who are getting a high amount of their high percentage of their team's targets. But, um, you know, with Landry, it's, he's continued to be unproductive now for a few weeks. Uh, 
in this Freddie Kitchens offense. And so I'm going to have to, you know, downgrade him from some of that earlier season stuff with the old staff. And I just want to mention too, about going back to the, uh, the Eckler and the, and the David Johnson, like in our DraftKings models at fantasy labs, Eckler was the number one projected flex play on the slate. Like he was the top projected plus minus of any non quarterback on the slate. And it also had McCaffrey and Saquon Barkley with uh, the top two projected plus minuses over, over David Johnson and, and Connor. So it was, uh, it kind of nailed it. <laughs> Seriously, man. Yeah. I, I think with those um, higher price running backs, uh, looking in hindsight, I would like to narrow down my exposure a little bit more. I think a smart way of doing that is like you said, looking at the value, looking at the projected plus minus. So something to improve upon in the future. All right. And now it's time to talk about the biggest fantasy disappointment of the weekend. I'm the trash man. Just throw me in the trash. You're garbage, and you know it. Totally unreliable. Is that it? Undependable. Is that it? That's it. You've been told off. How do you like that? Good. This week's trash man is Odell Beckham Jr. We got two big fans of OBJ here talking, but it was not his day. Uh, owning 24.7% of millionaire maker lineups. I mean, this Eagles secondary is just absolutely ravaged with injuries they're allowing 92.1 receiving yards per game to opposing number one wide receivers kind of even before they had all these injuries so definitely a unit you want to attack with uh, arguably uh, the best receiver in the league you know even Beckham's bad games he ended up with five catches for 85 scoreless yards so it wasn't the worst thing ever but just not really the smash spot that uh, I think we all thought was coming after the game it was interesting because OBJ media uh, told them that quote Coming in, knowing that they've struggled in the secondary, personally, I would have loved to attack them, but it wasn't in our game plan. Chris, what are your thoughts on uh, OBJ's, I guess, performance and to his comments? This is one of those games where I think it was just one of the, like a bad beat in terms of the scoring system used. Because, I mean, five for 85, you know, he led the the team, you know, they, they threw for 297. But, you know, if you're, you're not getting any, you're not getting, a t- you just don't get a touchdown there. So, um, it doesn't quite pay off, but I think his comments kind of speak to a larger thing with the Giants. I mean, you know, they're they're a little bit dysfunctional right now. They can have a couple good games and a couple couple bad games, and um, it's it's tough. It's tough, but I think this speaks to a larger point though, and it, and it's that coaches are going to game plan around different players um, in different weeks, and they're gonna some weeks they're gonna do what you think they're gonna do, but other weeks they're gonna kind of try to do something like a tendency breaker, and they're gonna say, oh well, the defense is gonna pay attention to Odell, so I'm gonna you know game plan and throw to Rhett Ellison or something like that. So NFL coaches do that all the time. Absolutely, and another situation where thought that could be coming a little bit was George Kittle, where we have Mar- no Marquise mm-hmm. Goodwin, no Pierre Garcon, ended up being the Million Makers' highest owned player at twenty eight point five percent. Another thing, just really didn't find the end zone. He had six catches for 48 yards, so not the worst day in the world, but just uh, tough to deal with in your lineups when you know those uh, high-priced guys just aren't quite getting it done. And now for the team that lost the public the most money this weekend, or as our old friend Joe Buck might put it. That is a disgusting act. That's right, Joe, the Pittsburgh Steelers. So this line opened up at Pittsburgh minus three and a half. Uh, we had 76% of public tickets backing Pitt. Not as much as the money, though. So we saw it settle around three points uh, by game time. Pretty tight, pretty ugly game in the first half. Uh, Pittsburgh was able to score a touchdown, a fake field goal right before the half, tied things up at 10. Juju Smith-Schuster had the touchdown of the day shortly after halftime, went 97 yards, showed off some speed and a nice stiff arm as well. But that was about as good as it got for Pittsburgh. Uh, they ended up turning the ball 
over three times after that touchdown. Uh, Manny Sanders and Philip Lindsay were able to find the end zone for the Broncos. And the final uh, fatal turnover was a Ben Roethlisberger interception intended for Antonio Brown, the two-yard line. And the funniest thing about this pick was uh, even even if the defensive lineman didn't get it, I mean, Bradley Roby was cutting across. Mm-hmm. Antonio Brown, probably it was like a double interception in one play. So pretty uh, brutal performance from the Steelers. Uh, Chris, thoughts on this beat and just the uh, performance in general? I mean, we consistently see the Steelers underwhelm when they go on the road. You know, sometimes, you know, it's usually in the one o'clock games, but I I mean, it's just more broadly on the road, period. And um, in this game, I mean, you saw Juju, you saw another game where Juju outgains Antonio Brown in terms of yardage. I think I tweeted out a couple weeks ago, you know, who would end the season with more yardage. And I think uh, Juju won by a pretty significant margin. And uh, it looks like he's going to continue to do that kind of interesting you've seen like a watered down Antonio Brown even though he's scoring all these touchdowns but uh you know Ben through for 462 and the, the Broncos are kind of coming around and kind of getting it together a little bit too so uh, props to Vance Joseph because I used to get on Vance Joseph but uh he's getting some wins going here for sure I mean you, you, it's so hard to hate on anything AB does the guy goes eight straight games uh with touchdowns but yeah man I mean his biggest game this year yardage wise is only 117 yards so uh, we just really haven't seen that same week-to-week explosion that Juju is offering. But in the uh, Pittsburgh offense, it's all good things. We even saw James Washington getting involved today, even though he's uh, diving for passes. He should probably just be running under. But tough- <laughs> Oh, I saw that one. Oh, my. It was impressive until he landed and the ball wasn't in his hands. For sure. But like, just keep <laughs> running, bro. It looked like a Madden guy just accidentally. Uh... But, oh, well, I- I'm so... I'm I'm still uh, optimistic in James Washington's future outlook, but yeah, and and it's also notable. Uh, I mean, Big Ben, so he threw fifty, what was it, fifty six times, but Ryan Switzer had uh, six catches for sixty seven on eight targets. So they're starting to use him in that slot since uh, James Washington, I guess, hasn't really popped quite as much as they hoped. So that's something to kind of monitor going forward as well. Yeah, Switzer's turning into basically the AFC version of Adam Humphreys. That's my mm-hmm. uh. My <laughs> yep. Um, all right, now we're gonna take a quick review of the winning millionaire maker lineup from Pajama Daddy 17. Becoming a DFS millionaire? Talk about a dream come true. What DraftKings lineup lived a daily fantasy fantasy this weekend? All right, so Pajama Daddy 17 is the proud new owner of one million dollars thanks to his lineup that contributed 252.82 points. He rolled with Lamar Jackson at the QB spot, Ravens uh, defense. I mean, the way Lamar's playing, that's basically an RB defense correlation. His uh, top two RBs were Saquon and Christian McCaffrey, who both smashed. Wide receivers were David Moore, who Chris mentioned a little bit earlier, along with Emmanuel Sanders and Juju, who we just got done gushing over. Tight end was Cam Bray with OJ Howard's sideline. And flex play was our guy, Austin Eckler, who we mentioned uh, earlier, was leading our models and projected plus minus. Chris, thoughts on this $1 million winning lineup? You have a couple correlations at play here. You have the McCaffrey, David Moore. So that kind of, you know, in, in a 30 to 27 game, you're usually going to hit on a couple of guys that put up a high total in fantasy points. You also have the opposing offense correlation between Juju Smith-Schuster and Emmanuel Sanders at the wide receiver spot. So uh, I thought that there were a couple of good correlations here. And then, yeah, going back to it, I mean, Saquon and McCaffrey, the two highest ceiling projections in the model, we always see this at the running back position. You can kind of get away with playing guys that are higher owned there because there's just not as big of a player pool to choose from 
at the running back position as the receiver position where there's also more variance. It's just kind of, you know, who ends up catching the touchdowns and whatnot. So you just saw two really high volume guys in McCaffrey and Barkley smash Cameron Bray. I mean, not even a big day, really three catches, 26 yards, but did get in the end zone. And, you know, I think the key was really nailing Juju, 7.3% own, mentioned it. A lot more upside than Antonio this year, weirdly enough. You know, nailing all those guys allowed him to, you know, get away with having Bray you know, only 11.6 points and 16.5% owned. And I think we've seen that a couple of times. I think there was like a couple of these like really low scoring tight ends that we've seen in winning lineups this year. So tight end seems to be that position where you don't necessarily need to, uh, smash it out of the park, especially when the, a guy like Kittle, who's really high owned at a higher price, busts anyway. You're, you can kind of get away with a lower price guy as long as he doesn't completely bust. Yeah, I know last week, uh, Zach Ertz was that high price guy that completely busted. And when you're paying uh, that far up on a tight end, hard to rebound the rest of your lineup. All right, now we're going to take a quick look at some of the uh, day's key injuries. Keep your head on a swivel for the injury report. First one that pops out, Marlon Mack, Colts running back, really taking over that backfield in recent weeks. Uh, suffered a concussion, I believe it's the fourth quarter of their Colts comeback victory today. But he did not return. Colts will be playing the Jaguars in Jacksonville, I believe, next week. We saw Mack not in the lineup from weeks three to five this year. Naeem Hines and Jordan Wilkins pretty much split time. As the early down, I mean, in terms of rushing, Hines had 24 rushes, Wilkins had 20. But Hines was still the guy that was on the field way more, and he was the clear pass down back. Chris, what are your thoughts on uh, this kind of two-back committee moving forward if uh, Mac's going to miss a game or two? Naeem Hines is probably going to be the guy that's going to get more volume. I mean, you said it. He's been on the field more. He's, he's a guy that can give you more in the passing game. You know, against Miami today, you know, Mac, 15 carries, Hines, nine carries. And then, you know, Andrew Luck got the two carries. Wilkins did not get any carries. Uh, I believe he got three targets for 32 yards. So I guess he actually, you know, he can contribute in the passing game as well. But Hines is the more dynamic back. And you can, you're going to kind of see him in a, that Tariq Cohen-like uh, role where he's going to be maybe like a little more than 50-50 guy who, and he's going to probably put up the more fantasy points more weeks than not. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting spot with luck, too. I know uh, Ahmed Bradshaw was scoring touchdowns every other week <laughs> when he had that role uh, way back when. Oh, yeah. All right, next uh, key running back that's hurt, Melvin Gordon. Mentioned a little before, we're talking about Eckler, how he was coming into this game injured. Took a nasty-looking hit. The initial diagnosis is an MCL injury, and uh, Chargers beat reporters are saying there's a real possibility he misses their Week 13 matchup versus Steelers. The good news is it at least doesn't seem to be a season-ending type injury obviously Austin Eckler here is the guy but we did see I, I believe he actually didn't even lead the Chargers in uh carries because of Justin Jackson but that might be a little bit of mop-up time what are you expecting in the Chargers backfield if Gordon has to miss some time I think Eckler is going to be the lead guy he's going to get the most touches I do think though they'll, they'll use Jackson kind of the way they they use Eckler even though Gordon is their their main guy so I think it's just you know you'll probably see Eckler for around you know 50 uh, to 60 percent of the snaps and touches maybe a little bit more like two-thirds and uh i think you'll see jackson for the for the remaining one-third definitely a situation to keep an eye on we'll see if that offense can keep rolling a little tougher road date in pittsburgh next week all right andy dalton uh, is the latest bangle to get hurt he uh injured his right thumb x-rays were negative at least but i mean when you're obviously a right-handed quarterback it's going to be a little bit of an issue if you can't grip the ball the way you need to this Bengals offense, though, anyway, 21 or fewer points in five of the last six games uh, without having A.J. Green. 
talent level is just way down. No Tyler Eifert, obviously. We're looking at a Jeff Driscoll, a six-round pick from the 2016 draft. Calling him a dual threat might be a little bit generous, but he can move around a little bit. Home versus the Broncos in week 13. Chris, if there's no Andy Dalton, how are you approaching this Bengals offense? Or are you approaching this Bengals offense? Yeah, it's tough. I think, uh, you know, Driscoll probably has a little bit of upside. So uh, I'm not, you know, you don't completely, you're not completely scared of it. But without A.J. Green, it's just tough for these guys, you know, outside of Tyler Boyd and, uh, you know, Joe Mixon to really do much of anything. John Ross, he's kind of flashing here and there. He'll get into the end zone or whatnot. So I guess he's the other guy. And you saw him if you're really desperate at tight end. But this Bengals offense is not going to be in a good place without A.J. Green kind of being able to draw away coverage from the defense. You know, he's a guy who, you know, 40% of their air yards before he went out. So he's essentially the guy that's, you know, when the ball is in the air, the defense is looking for. And, um, you know, without that presence, it's a lot easier to defend that whole offense. Yeah, and we saw uh, Tyler Boyd really get shut down the last two weeks without Green in there. He did find the end zone today and get things going against the Browns defense that's a little bit weaker against the slot. But yeah, definitely just lower floor, lower ceiling in that offense without A.J. Green. Two other quick injuries just to keep an eye on. Vance McDonald left the game with a hip injury. Obviously, if he misses time, Jesse James becomes a more realistic fancy option. And then Evan Ingram didn't even play because of a hamstring injury. Apparently, uh, was acting up in pregames and he didn't even play a snap. Probably wouldn't look at Rhett Ellison, but could be a situation where Sterling Shepard sees some additional targets if Ingram is ultimately out again. All right, now we look at some workload and notable standouts from the day. First one, mentioned them briefly, but Baker Mayfield and the Browns. Oh, my goodness. As soon as Freddie Kitchens came into town, they have really uh, taken over. I mean, I don't want to get too far ahead because this little three games they've had where they have had a good offense have come against uh, the Chiefs, Falcons, and Bengals. So I think we'll find out a little bit more next week against Houston, uh, number three defense, DVOA. But, man, I mean, the Browns look they look for real. What do you think? Yeah, I think the Browns are, are coming on strong here. We, we all knew that. We all knew what they needed. They needed uh, a new coaching staff. And – they got, you know, they got it. And now that we're here and they're looking a lot better, you know, three games into to this new new regime. And you're seeing guys finally produce, you know, Najoku came through with a touchdown today, you know, been waiting for him to kind of get back on track. Uh, Nick Chubb, I think that that trade, uh, when they sent away Carlos Hyde and, and gave Chubb the backfield, the keys to the backfield, I think that really kind of changed things for them too, because he's, he's making a lot of explosive plays and, and getting into, really has a nose for the end zone for him. And, I think that offense is a, a lot more explosive with him on the field than, than it was with Hyde. Yeah, I keep seeing Chubb on top of all these uh, yards after contact lists, but then you're also seeing him breaking these long runs. Uh, pretty special to see a guy with that type of uh, physical ability and also with the Jets to take a distance. One issue in this offense, not I mean, not an issue for the Browns, but just for us uh, fantasy players, the targets have been really close. Jarvis Landry has had 17 over these three games. Duke Johnson's at 15. Antonio Callaway's at 12, Najoku's 11. We even got Rashad Perryman at nine and Rashad Higgins at eight. Are you expecting Landry or one of these guys to kind of bust out of this, or do you think it's going to kind of be a tough situation week to week to figure out who's going to lead this squad in receiving? I think in this, this situation, you do have to kind of just look at the guys getting the uh, – the most air yards and the most targets. And that's been, that's been Callaway and Landry. And then we know Najoku for a tight end, you know, he's, he's going to be up there, but I think, um, I think if you're trying to, you know, find some value or find a guy, it's, it's Callaway's the guy with the, uh, the most air yards on the team over those three games up at 201. And then Landry has 176. So I would bet on Landry eventually breaking out of this funk. 
his average up to targets around 10.4. So it's not like he's just only seeing those underneath targets. But again, then again, that may be part of the issue as well. So um, I, I bet on Landry breaking out of it. I think Njoku will continue to uh, to play well. And uh, the guy besides the like the non, non-core guy, I think I would look at is Callaway. Yeah, it'd be good to see uh, Callaway get back on track. Definitely saw him flash a little bit in the preseason and early on in the year. All right, next situation, Christian McCaffrey and the Panthers. So Devin Funches was out today with a back injury, and the Panthers accordingly went Christian McCaffrey, 11 targets. DJ Moore had nine. Greg Olson had four. Everyone else had two or fewer. McCaffrey absolutely went off in this game. Uh, became just the ninth running back in the last 25 years with at least 100 yards rushing and receiving in the same game. Chris, if Funches is going to be out for an extended period of time, and maybe even if he's not, do you just expect uh, kind of this Panthers offense to become the Christian McCaffrey show as they're basically in win-now mode? Absolutely. And I think it was pretty much, <clears throat> excuse me, the Christian McCaffrey show all year, if you really think about it. I mean, this guy, before the season, we kind of laughed as, as fantasy owners that have gone through this way too much over the years. You know, just every year there's a, there's a couple of quotes out there where a coach <laughs> goes, you know, I'm going to play this guy. Some amount of snaps that makes you think that they've never sat down and looked at like snaps. Or, or targets or whatever touches and then you know it doesn't happen but with McCaffrey you know he's in there every snap I mean he's he's usually getting 80 90 even up to 100 percent of the, the backfield carries in games and you know easily has that double digit target upside gets goal line carries so uh, I think you know this is this offense is going to run through McCaffrey and then you also had DJ Moore continue to to ball out you know eight catches 91 yards N- nothing crazy but you know nine targets and he caught eight of them so I think um that's really good to see for for Carolina because you know Funches is a certain type of receiver. He got a lot better, but um, having DJ Moore and Christian McCaffrey really completes that offense, especially when you still have solid complementary pieces like Olsen and and Torrey Smith and, and Curtis Samuel. So I think this can be a really explosive offense for for Cam down the stretch. Whole lot of speed there with Samuel and Smith, as you mentioned. But yeah, back in uh, July. Carolina Panthers coach Ron Rivera said it would be ideal if McCaffrey could get 25 to 30 touches a game. And we scoffed at it, but man, it's uh, been pretty close to what's been happening. So good to, good to see Ron kind of fulfill that promise. All right, other offense we're going to look at, the Ravens. Uh, Joe Flacco's out another week, still Lamar Jackson's season. Gus the Bus Edwards was also the RB1 again with Alex Collins inactive. Ty Montgomery and Buck Allen have not been involved these last two weeks. Ravens went from having basically the most pass-heavy offense in the league to the most pass-adverse offense in the league. Chris, how are you approaching this Ravens offense knowing that it's basically Lamar and Gus running the ball as often as possible? Yeah, I think the the receivers all get a downgrade. Uh, you know, I think John Brown in tournaments will continue to be a a good option just because he's the kind of guy, you know, if, if there ends up being a, a bigger play, a big play, or, a, a, you know, a kind of a, a play that, is worth stacking. It's probably going to be him, but Gus Edwards, I mean, if you have a team that's going to run instead of, you know, the NFL average is around 30 times a game, you're running, you know, 40 times a game or more. Um, that just raises the floor of a, of a running back. Even somebody like Gus Edwards, who hasn't really uh, gotten too involved in the passing game, at least not yet. So for them to be rush having that kind of run volume, I think it really, it really helps Edwards. And I think when Collins comes back, he'll probably, play second fiddle to Edwards kind of like the these last couple of weeks, they they've gave, given Edwards around, you know, two thirds of the carries today, you know, 23 Montgomery, eight Allen one. So, you know, they continue to kind of give him the majority of carries in that backfield. And I think we'll see that going forward. 
Yeah, Johnson had 23 carries today. That was the most by a Ravens running back since Terrence West in 2016. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it seems like it's the it's the bus show in the backfield. But, yeah, man, I don't, I don't know what to think about these receivers. Willie Sneed led the team with eight targets last week. He didn't even have a single target today. And he actually was on the field for almost the whole game, too. So it, it's going to be a tough situation to figure out there passing the ball. All right, now we're going to look ahead to Monday night's matchup between the Titans and the Texans. This game is in Houston. The Texans opened up as five-and-a-half-point favorites. That has been bet down to four points. The over-under opened at 43, and that has gone down to 41-and-a-half. Uh, we'll start off looking at this Titans offense. Corey Davis, the number one wide receiver, we talked about him a lot on this podcast. But Taiwan Taylor, the number two receiver, is out with a foot injury. So, Chris, how are you approaching this Titans passing game behind Davis, who's the obvious uh, number one guy there? I think you just have to kind of look at the guys that have been stepping up lately over these past couple of games with Taewon Taylor out, if you're trying to get any idea. It's kind of similar to when you're looking at what's going to happen in a backfield. What's usually most predictive in those situations is just the, the most recent data. So, I mean, over these last few games, you know, Davis continued, you know, 30% target share, but then you had Johnu Smith second on the team with a uh, 15% target share. So I think, you know, Johnu Smith is kind of a guy that we always thought when Dwayne Walker was out that Johnu Smith could be a, a viable kind of streaming type or, or low cost DFS play. And it really hadn't materialized until these last few games where he's starting to get red zone targets. So um, he's somebody to monitor. And then Tajay Sharp, you know, he's still still in the picture. We've seen him kind of come alive for 100-yard games, and we've seen him go completely targetless in others. But, you know, he's sitting there with a 12% target share over these last few games, 14% of the air yards. So um, I think you look for them. And then in DFS, Cameron Batson, uh, he tends to play a little bit more when when Taylor, one of the top two guys, is out as well in, in three wide sets. And he's actually popping for DK showdowns as the top value on the on the slate because he's priced at only $200. So that's somebody to, to watch for if you're playing DFS. Yeah, good stuff. And as you mentioned with Joe New, I mean, he only had three or fewer targets in weeks one through 10. In week 11, he pops off for eight. So we'll see if that's a trend that could perhaps be capitalized on here his last five weeks. All right, quick look at the Titans' backfield. We've kind of seen Deion Lewis take over this situation the last uh, month or so. He's had at least 19 touches in three of the last four games. He's out-touched Henry and at least those four, really, for most of the season overall. But this is a tough match at the Texans. Uh, they ranked third in overall DVOA, number two defense versus the run. Only Saquon Barkley, and he had 82 rushing yards, has gone over 75 yards on the ground versus Houston this season. So, Chris, I mean, tough run defense – mediocre Titans run blocking offensive line. This has to be a Deion Lewis game, right? You would think, but it's, it's tough because there's just so much, um, there's no kind of rhyme or reason to if they're going to use him or not by the goal line, which can you know create variance where Derrick Henry ends up getting the touchdown. So, um, and he hasn't always kind of came through with those targets like you'd expect on a consistent basis in some of these games. So for example, against uh, Indianapolis, even in a blowout, he didn't really do anything in the passing game, which was kind of surprising. So it sets up well as a Deion Lewis game. But I think if you're playing like a DFS tournament, you always have to kind of consider Henry in the same way you kind of have to consider uh, LeGarrette Blunt like on that Thursday slate, even though he's the underdog and playing a tough defense. It's just when you have a guy that you know has that multi-touchdown upside because they get work on the goal line, then uh, those guys are always kind of the lower-owned tournament plays that you can pivot to. 
Yeah, definitely on a full PPR site like DraftKings as well, where you just don't expect guys like Henry and Blunt to go off until, of course, they do on Thanksgiving. All right, now this Houston pass offense. They replaced Will Fuller, obviously torn ACL, with Demarius Thomas from the Broncos. So it hasn't gone all that great to start. Demarius Thomas has three targets in two weeks. Really, basically three targets, I think, in the first two quarters of that game against the Broncos where they uh, schemed them a couple looks early on, not really much sense. I'm really just concerned about this offense in general without Will Fuller, and we've talked about this year, but uh, Watson's now had five career starts without Fuller, and he's only gone for over 215 passing yards in one of those. I mean, I feel like we're almost looking at some like Dak Prescott-esque passing numbers here with uh, Fuller in or out of the lineup. With Fuller, Watson's averaging 9.04 yards per attempt. Without, he goes all the way down to 6.92. Chris, is this a sample size thing? Or, I mean, are, are these legitimate concerns about the Texans' offense not really having that explosive factor moving forward? There's kind of layers to it. So I think it is a little bit of a sample size thing. I think if in fantasy you're concerned, I think if you're the Texans, you're not that concerned. Because I think the bottom line with, with Deshaun Watson is that he's a really good quarterback and he'll be able to adapt to playing without Fuller on these last you know two games. So he's averaged 8.88 yards per attempt and 8.67 yards per attempt. So, I mean, that's right there with his uh, – that's actually above his career average of 8.4 overall. So um, you haven't really seen a drop-off in these last two games. What's really going on and why you worry a little bit in fantasy – is just because they're, I think, making a concerted effort to throw the ball less. And, I mean, you've seen Watson's attempts over these last five games, 25, 24, 20, 24, 24. And so, you know, some of that is that, you know, Watson is an efficient quarterback most of the time, and he doesn't need a ton of attempts to to rack up yardage, especially when he, he has Fuller. But at the end of the day, when you're throwing that, few of a passes and you know he's not running particularly a lot either you know seven attempts in you know four weeks ago and then these last three weeks you know one six three so it's it hasn't quite been the consistent game on the ground for him either so he kind of gets a little downgrade in fantasy to that next tier he's not that elite quarterback one anymore but I think from just Houston's offensive standpoint I think they'll be able to adjust I don't think Thomas is going to be a huge factor but I I could see him getting some targets this week because you know Bill Ryan came out and said hey you know it's been tough to kind of integrate him so that probably means it's top of mind and they'll, they'll try to get him going. Yeah, I mean, you said it. I mean, they've won seven straight games, so obviously whatever they're doing is working. I'm not I'm not hating on the Texans uh, team at this point, but look, I mean, they only have more than 23 points one of their last six games. You mentioned the pass attempts. I mean, Watson only had fewer than 25 pass attempts in two of his first 12 starts. I mean, he's gone five straight. We've mentioned this, but really ever since uh, kind of the Cowboys beat the crap out of him on Sunday Night Football, yes. and he had that uh, kind of lung and rib injuries, they've just – Really been taking it easy on him, and behind that offensive line, I mean, it's probably a good idea to do so. And with them taking it easy on him, they have fully embraced this kind of two-headed rushing attack. Lamar Miller is still the featured guy. He's, he's had at least 14 touches in every game this season, but Alfred Blue's been getting the rock, too. He's had at least eight touches in each of his last six games. I mean, with or without Miller, they're, they're utilizing both these guys, and Blue's definitely a, a candidate for to steal some goal line carries. Titans have been a pass-funnel defense. They're ninth versus the run DVOA 24th with the pass is uh you know one game slate here is the leverage play maybe going with uh Alfred Blue and hope he vultures Miller once or twice absolutely because he vultures Miller not just 
in scoring position, but just some, sometimes in general, you know, in the natural flow of the game. So, you know, there's been games where Miller, you know, was getting, you know, 70, 80, 90% of the carries in the backfield, but you mentioned it, you know, Blue's consistently mixing in for, for carries. And sometimes that ends up being closer to 50% of the carries. So it's all about, you know, market share. It's one of those stats that you can sort by on the fantasy labs model. And you can like look at market share of touchdowns or market share of, of carries or whatever not. And I think that's really important, especially on like one game DFS slates, because whoever's kind of hogging the production, that's going to most of the time inversely correlate with the other guys. So if it's, um, you know, you mentioned it, you got all the leverage here with playing blue, but that said, I think Miller is a very good play especially in like the captain slot on drafting. Cause if you look at it, kind of the most common lineup construction you see in a lot of the optimal lineups or the lineups that end up winning the tournaments has the favorite teams running back in the captain slot. And um, it kind of builds around that. So I think Miller's still a good play as a, as a home favorite running back. For sure. And we've seen uh, Miller go for at least 85 or more rushing yards in three of the last four weeks. So really, uh, I feel like right when we started getting the news that Dante Foreman was going to return to practice uh, somewhat soon, kind of got Miller to get his butt back into it and get going again. So, all right, now we're going to look ahead to an awesome edition of Thursday Night Football, or so we think. We got the Saints and the Cowboys. The Saints are currently seven and a half point favorites in Jerry World, and the over-under is resting at 53 and a half points after opening at 51 and a half. So the main question with the Cowboys these days is the Amari Cooper effect. And I mean, it has looked pretty freaking legit. We've seen uh, Ezekiel Elliott go for 160.8 total yards and a touchdown per game in these four games with Cooper. Dak Prescott has uh, seen his yards per attempt go from 6.9 in weeks one through eight to 7.8 in these last four weeks. Of course, always a uh, threat to run the ball. Chris, what are your thoughts here on this Cowboys offense with kind of Cooper, I guess, at least forcing defenses to respect that deep ball? Or do you think maybe he just had a good run against the Eagles and Redskins and it's still maybe a vertically limited Cowboys offense? No, I think Cooper really helps this offense because it, it does everything that, that they needed. Um, it gives them everything that – not everything that they need, but it gives them what they kind of lost with, with Des Bryant going away and never having somebody to replace him, which is somebody for Dak Prescott to, to just kind of – feed the football to and somebody that makes them respect makes defenses as you mentioned respect Ezekiel Elliott and I think you know having a receiver that can you know do both of those things that's not just like let's say a decoy who who can clear out and maybe make defenses respect Zeke but you know it's still not someone for that to go with the ball I don't think that would help quite as much but the fact that Cooper is kind of able to do that and get open enough to to draw a lot of targets it's key because remember targets aren't just a use usage that um, in the way that like a coach kind of draws up a running play and a running back gets an attempt and you can kind of rely on it. Like a target is somewhat skill-based in, in that, you know, when you're running and you're competing against, you know, two, three, four other guys who are also running routes. And when you're able to draw a target, you know, and then not only draw a target, but catch the football and, and, and turn it into positive plays. Like that's obviously the essence of football. And, you know, Cooper's 22 catches in 32 targets. He's got 349 yards, three touchdowns already. Uh, and that's just in four games and 24% of the targets, 33% of the air yards. I think that's big for Dak. You know, those 33% of his air yards changes his whole statistical outlook um, and, and it changes this offense. So, you know, kudos to them for kind of, you know, they got criticized for, for what they spent on Cooper, but he's looked worth it. And I think the more and more that, you know, Cooper's obviously had his issues with you know, drops and whatnot, but I'll, Ian, I mean, the more and more you look at it, doesn't it look like Cooper's struggles were probably a lot more on Derek Carr than probably anyone thought? 
Absolutely. I mean, Derek Carr seems to keep getting all these passes. And like, I, I just don't get it, man. Like, no, no nine-figure quarterback has ever done less with more than Derek Carr. They surround him with one of the league's highest-paid offensive lines. He's he's got Amari Cooper who's just balling out with Dak Prescott, who was the butt of everyone's joke a month ago. And, and, and now Dak's just playing better than we've ever even seen Carr play a little bit. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there, dude. Like, I, I don't get it. And the worst part was, like, Carr didn't even give Cooper a chance to be this. Like, he was feeding Michael Crabtree and Jared Cook instead of this guy. Well, yeah, and that's the thing with Carr is that – so he combines kind of the worst qualities of Alex Smith with – and, you know, that's not a knock on Alex Smith. I mean, we know what Alex Smith's limitations are. He's not aggressive. He doesn't – like to throw into tight windows. And, you know, Derek Carr is the same way. He likes to get rid of the ball really quickly. And but he combines that with no movement ability. That's really, I think, the killer because a guy like Alex Smith, when, when a play breaks down, he doesn't automatically always have to chuck it short. He can, you know, pick up first downs with his legs or, or get into the end zone with his legs. Like Derek Carr is not giving you that. So he's just a below average quarterback. And his upside is kind of limited uh, as well because of that. And you said he just didn't give Cooper a chance. There was a play, I think, a week or two ago where it was a fourth and three at the Raiders needed. And Carr, like, it was a little bit of pressure in the middle of the pocket. And he just took two steps and just chucked it into the dirt. And it was almost like a stadium-wide, like, what the hell is this guy doing type of groan. But, oh, man, enough of Derek Carr for the Saints-Cowboys preview. Now looking back to Zeke here for a second. Like I said, man, I mean, he is just absolutely killing it. I mean, really just looks faster, more athletic. Obviously, having maybe a less guy in the – box will do that for you but I think we saw that a little bit last year as well kind of a slow start to the season but I mean he is rolling now but we got this Saints run defense nobody's even gained over 70 yards on him this year I mean, they've held Gurley to 68 Mixon to 61 Saquon to 44 that's not like they haven't been tested we've talked a little bit on here about how you know the Saints have had these rough games on defense against the Bucks, Falcons and Rams other than that, though, they've pretty much held everyone underneath 23 points and uh, looked pretty solid. Do you think the Cowboys here can win this matchup with Zeke in the run game? I don't think they have to anymore because they've kind of figured out that, okay, we can throw the ball to this guy too. Uh, that's been, I think, a real – the top reason that Zeke is, has been able to kind of get back on track is that he's been able to offset any type of, of slow start in the run game with – with these receiving targets and with Cooper on the team, Zeke is up over a 20% target. Here. He's at 21% of the targets and that's huge for a running back and that's huge for him. So if he starts getting stuffed for whatever reason, I'm not, I don't think that'll necessarily happen, but um, even if he starts getting stuffed in this game, they can throw him the football. And I think that will, um, that'll keep them on track, but New Orleans, you know, they give them a lot of credit. I mean, their defense is really coming on strong. They're, they're able to defend the tight ends really well. They, they stopped playing Manti tail, unless there's like a team that runs a lot of double tight end looks and stuff like that. So in this New Orleans defense in general, I think we have to take a little bit more seriously, but I'm curious, Ian, as to what your thoughts on like, do you think that this, because like we we're used to talking about the Saints offense in the dome and how good it is, but now the defense also benefits from being in the dome. Do you think they travel well? You know, do you think they have as much success as they had against the Falcons in Jerry world? I'm not sure if they're any better just because they're in a dome, but maybe it does at least give them a chance to kind of flash that athleticism because you do look at this defense at least now versus beginning of the season. There's at the very least, you got more talent on these three levels. I mean, Eli Apple hasn't had the 
greatest start to his career, but this is still a guy that was picked 10th overall, arms down to his freaking knees. He's ran a 4-3 or 4-4 four, four at the combine. He's, he's across from Marshawn Lattimore, another top 12 pick. You got another, I mean, basically Ohio State secondary down there with Von Bell at safety. But, I mean, all these guys are pretty highly touted college prospects that have come out in the league and at least flashed that same high-level ability, even if it hasn't been the most consistent. So I think it does make sense that we've seen uh, this defense kind of begin to gel a little bit better as we're going on. But uh, I'm not sure if, I mean, just being in Jerry Will particularly, I, I don't know, we haven't really seen Jerry Will be a big home field advantage in years past, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was just more so thinking of, like, we've, we've seen the Saints D come on these last few games. More so, like, especially that game against the Falcons, you know, they did it at home. I think that it's easier to get pressure when you're at home. You've got the crowd behind you. So I'm interested to see, you know, if they can kind of get as much pressure because they're, they're leaving their corners, those guys you talked about, and man coverage. I mean, Eli Apple, you know, he was one-on-one a lot of the time. Um, sometimes they give him help over the top. And they'll leave, they'll leave Lattimore alone on an island, too. So um, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, will they be able to get as much pressure in this game or and, and continue to play this stout defense that we've seen? Because if so, I mean, they they have to be like the Super Bowl front. I mean, they are a Super Bowl front runner, but if that defense can play well again, I mean, this team is so scary. Yeah, man, the cornerback situation has been a little hard to figure out since they got Eli because the first three weeks they just stuck Lattimore on one side and Elon the other. They they stayed there. And these last two weeks they've faced a team with a good enough number one receiver to kind of start shadowing. I think you kind of called this last week actually where I think what we saw on Thanksgiving yeah. was Lattimore shadowed Ridley and then they had Eli shadow Julio with constant safety. You know, they bracketed him, so it was more or less a double team on Julio all the time. Do you think there's even a number two receiver on the Cowboys worthy of that? Or could we almost see just like a bracket on Cooper with Lattimore? Yeah, I, I think that you probably see – I would think you see that unless they kind of go – I mean, you mentioned Apple's length and kind of, you know, his physical ability. I mean, you could very well put Apple on, on Cooper as well. Uh, so, I mean, I don't – I think if, if Apple's playing at that level where you're actually questioning what, like, what they're going to do, that's just the real step up for them on defense. So. But I think yeah, I don't think Michael Gallup warrants like any type of special treatment. I think they'll eat. I think they actually might feel comfortable doing that again, where they'll they'll leave Lattimore on an island with Gallup because I don't think they'll be scared of that matchup at all. Yeah, I mean, if you can just guarantee you're going to race one guy in the field every play, <laughs> not not a bad uh, deal for any defense. All right, we'll go ahead and look at the Saints' offensive side of the ball now. First thing we always got to talk about here is this uh, Alvin Kamara and Mark Ingram two running back system. I, I will just say I've never seen two running backs just enjoy watching each other, each other score as much. I mean, watching these Saints games is just a joy. I mean, it looks like their entire team is just having the time of their lives. And why wouldn't they? They're killing everybody. So but anyway, since uh, this week five bye, we've seen Kamara be the lead back. He's averaging 42 snaps per game compared to 30 for Ingram. But I mean, much like last season, both these guys are producing one of the best offenses in the league. But Chris, what are your thoughts here for these two running backs, specifically Thursday night? I think you, you got to like them because even though I guess it makes you a little uncomfortable in fantasy and DFS when you have this uncertain split and, you know, touchdown variance, especially the fewer touches you get can hit, you know, you, you don't miss out on that touchdown. You have a, a shaky fantasy performance. But I mean, the upside of both of these guys is, is enhanced and the floors are enhanced a little too because this team is just running so much. So Drew Brees has just been so efficient that he hasn't needed a lot of pass attempts to really put up big numbers. But I think we kind of saw that on Thanksgiving where he had the four passing touchdowns and he didn't even hit 200 yards passing. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of remarkable. And I think it's, it's interesting that in 2018, we're sitting here talking about offensive explosion. It's a passing lead more than ever. Passing yards per attempt 
are up. Passing touchdowns per game up at a historical level. So we're, we're talking about all that, but there's been these few teams that have kind of gone back to the run game and kind of been these very low volume passing teams, the Seahawks. Um, it's worked for them. You know, Russell Wilson's still throwing touchdowns. They're still winning games. In New Orleans as well, where Drew Brees isn't really attempting a lot of passes. They're, they're using Taysom Hill to run the ball. That You know, they're, they have these two backs that they're trying to get double-digit carries each game or double-digit touches. And, I mean, it's, it's crazy to see. But New Orleans is not really a passing team. So I think that's what really helps those two guys, you know, Ingram and Kamara, is that, you know, this is a team that's committed to the run and they're good enough that you don't expect them to just fall behind in a game and have a real bad uh, game script to where they're not going to be able to run the ball. So I think, yeah, you continue to, to ride with these guys. So at least in the first couple weeks with the Saints offense, when we did see him throwing the ball, we could basically ensure it was going to Michael Thomas or Alvin Kamara. <laughs> really wasn't the case this last uh, Thursday when we saw Traquan Smith was out with a foot injury. Obviously, that would be one of the top injuries to monitor for this game going to Thursday. But without Traquan involved, Michael Thomas had six targets. Dan Arnold, uh, six foot five, 222-pound undrafted free agent, uh, also had six targets. We had Keith Kirkwood with three, Ingram had two, Ben Watson had two, and then uh, Kamara, Tommy Lee Lewis, and Austin Carr had one. Chris, do you see anything here in this one-game target distribution that you think uh, it's too telling, or do you think kind of behind Michael Thomas it's just going to be a, a volatile situation week to week? Yeah, it's going to be a volatile situation week to week. I think one of my followers on Twitter asked about the, you know, what was going on with Alvin Kamara and his kind of decreased usage in the passing game, which I thought was kind of surprising going against the Atlanta Falcons of all teams. What you see kind of, and I think this goes back to what we talked about earlier with, with these coaches, is that they want to break tendencies. And I think on air, on the, on the telecast of that Saints game, they were talking about how a lot of times defenses are being forced to treat Alvin Kamara like a wide receiver. Um, you know, he's, he's lining up in the slaughter out wide. He can kind of motion back in. And so a lot of times he's treated like a wide receiver. They end up putting extra defenses back on the field or they're just staying in nickel. And um, when you have that, Alvin Kamara is a really powerful inside runner as well, really strong. And so, you know, really good at, you know, balance, bouncing off tackles inside as well. So the Saints have kind of just been riding that lately, just kind of running him inside and not um, using him on the perimeter as much as a receiver. So we'll see. I, I would imagine that at some point that's going to kind of reverse as well. But uh, we'll see if that happens in this game against Dallas. But I think Arnold and Kirkwood, those two guys stand out because Arnold has been getting more usage in the passing game and Ben Watson snaps have been getting scaled back. Josh Hill is always going to be the blocker and play, you know, 50, 60% of the snaps mostly as a blocker because they have those running backs that they can put in routes. But, you know, Arnold is kind of their go-to receiving guy. And I think Kirkwood is going to kind of be that guy that could maybe pop like Willie Sneed did a couple years back where, you know, just kind of a, a guy that, you know, on the field with Drew Brees a lot and, you know, good things happen here on the field with Drew Brees a lot. Can't go wrong there. That's for sure. All right. That'll be a fun game. Looking forward to that. We're going to wrap this up with our weekly bet. Last week, we were uh, betting on that Rams-Chiefs game from heaven. Oh, my goodness. Off offensive 2018 football is pretty fun, man. But you know, we, we had some defensive scores in that game, too. It wasn't, it wasn't just all uh, moving up and down the field, but a lot of it was, and that's okay. Anyway, uh, I took the over in that one. got a much-needed against the spread W. Unfortunately, I picked Todd Gurley as my high-scoring player, and he somehow – had the game of the year when they scored 52 points. Chris, I believe you pushed on Rams minus three. And, you know, I'm not sure which player you took, but he assuredly more scored more points than Gurley. What's your first pick here for uh, Texans-Titans? I, I took Mahomes, I'm pretty sure. Uh, okay. Texans-Titans, who I got a player. Uh, I am going with... 
I think I got to go with DeAndre Hopkins here. I think, you know, highest ceiling player on the slate, I would say, you know, we mentioned Watkins targets. Attempts have been down, but Hopkins has still been dominating that target share in Houston and dominating the air yards as well. And you mentioned it, Marius Thomas, not really a major factor this far. So, you know, Hopkins 38% target share since week nine. So I'm going to roll with D with Nuke. Feels like Nuke's just in a tier above anyone else in this game from a fantasy perspective. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go with uh, Deion Lewis. Hope uh, Derrick Henry doesn't vulture him too bad, and uh, we can get some of those checkdowns. Hopefully, the Texans uh, get off to a little lead and get some good Deion Lewis game script uh, against the spread. I'm going to take the Titans plus four. I'm still just not quite sold on this Houston team. I know they've run off seven straight. This defense is. Really scary when you got uh, Watt, Clowney, and Merciless healthy in that front seven. I mean, that's a solid group, and I think that group has propped up uh, an underwhelming uh, group of cornerbacks. I don't know. Personally, I think defensive lines are way more responsible for uh, coverage than your secondary. It's just tough to guard NFL receivers for that long. So I think, uh, yeah, Texas has been good, but you know we've already seen this uh, spread drop a point and a half, and Mariota appears to at least be healthy enough. So even if the Titans don't win, I think they keep it within a field goal. Yeah, I think that's a good call. I mean, Houston's just so many one-score games. It's kind of been – I think that's why people are so skeptical about them. I still think they're one of the better teams in the AFC, kind of one of the sleepers in the AFC. But um, it's hard to really get a gauge on them because of those one-score games. But I think I'm going to go with the with the under 41 and a half here. 41 is, I believe, still the most common score in an NFL game. So – Houston, not quite as explosive without without Fuller and not passing quite as much. So combine that with Tennessee's kind of sluggish tendencies, and they usually play pretty solid defense. I think you have uh, the recipe for a low-scoring game here. All right, that'll be one to check out Monday night. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This was the Action Network NFL podcast. We are always here Sunday night. We hope you enjoyed. Chris, any last words? Let's get this money. 